All right, well, if you would be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 28 through 32 this morning, the uh, end of this particular chapter, Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Let's hear the word of the Lord to us, his people. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth for this morning, for this uh, passage, is this. God's merciful judgment gives, uh, further gives us over to the relational destruction that flourishes when we judge him to be relationally unworthy. Let me say that one more time. God's merciful judgment further gives us over to the relational destruction that flourishes when we judge him to be relationally unworthy. And we'll see this unpacked as we go through these verses. We'll return to it in a minute here. But first, I have, I have a question for us, or a series of questions, really. And they're these. What makes a good friendship? What makes a, a flourishing community? And maybe as you, as you think about that, what, what makes a just country? Uh, you know, as we've talked before, the, the, the Romans in the first century, the Romans that Paul is addressing here in this letter, were uh, a divided church in some ways. They were a mixed church. They had both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians with, with different histories, with different perspectives on life, and that was bringing some division. And so one of Paul's great purposes in this letter is to emphasize the things that these Christians stand unified in. And, and in chapter 1, it's, it's been mainly they stand unified in their need for a Redeemer, in their need for uh, forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ and, and reconciliation with, with God. And, and yet these were still pretty live questions for them, and they're live questions for us. What really makes a good friendship? What helps a flourishing community to grow and to be all that it can be? And what makes a country to be just and right and a good place to live? Well, these questions will help us to kind of think about the message of these verses. What is God calling us to? What is he calling us to fix our gaze upon as we seek the good of relational wholeness? So we come now to the close of Paul's outline of Gentile sinfulness in these verses. And remember, as I've said, that one of the great themes of this portion of Romans is that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians stand unified in their absolute need for Jesus as a result of their radical sinfulness. And as it was in the first century in Rome, so it is with us today. All of us, whether we're, we consider that in relation to each other as a local church or in relation to our neighbors and co-workers or maybe in relation to just the wider church in North America or in relation to the world, all of us stand unified in our sin, in our need for Jesus, and our need for reconciliation with God. And whatever differences we might be particularly attuned to, however, however we might classify those divisions or with whatever importance we might give to them, None of us can say to another, you are sinful and I am not. Or, or perhaps even more subtly, you are particularly sinful in this particular way and I am less so. None of us can say that. 
And so Paul's project in these verses has been to show how the Gentile Christians have been, have been willfully stamped and marked by sin. Now, these are people who've not had the history of God's self-disclosure through His Word that the Jewish people had had throughout the times of the Old Testament. They've been cut off from the people of God. They were foreigners to the covenants of promise. They, they, they hadn't had the benefit of hearing His moral law expounded from a very young age and explained to them as, as the Jewish people had done. Now, does this mean that they're excused for their sinful behavior? No, not at all, Paul says. It's true they didn't have Moses, but they did have the world, and yet they didn't honor the Creator of the world or give thanks to Him. They didn't worship Him. They worshiped, and we worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. And so, as we've seen, God responds in a series of, of merciful judgments against this swapping of allegiances, that this rebellion against Him. And, and they're summed up in this chapter by Paul's threefold statement, God gave them up. So, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And now in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. And all along with his polemic against Gentile sinfulness, Paul knows that the Jewish Christians are in his audience are, you know, they're, they're nodding their heads in agreement. These are people who've had instruction in the Bible about this sort of thing, and they're expecting Paul's argument here, that they kind of know where he's going with things. And his purpose in chapter 2 will be to, to turn the tables and to say, all you who judge these things, because you know them to be wrong, you judge them rightly to be wrong and immoral, you condemn yourselves also, because you practice the very same things. Well, that's to get ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but it does remind us that, that Paul's project here, again, is to remind us of our unified need of Jesus, of our unified need of a Savior. And so Paul's final summation of God's judgment against the sinful rebellion against God that has marked every man and woman throughout the ages without distinction is that God gives us over to a debased mind that produces relational destruction in every corner of our lives. Now, this relational destruction is devastating, and, and none of us has escaped it. You and I have experienced it this very week, and we participated in it in various ways. We continue to feel the effects of it, and in our hurt and self-centeredness, we, we add to it, and we will go on feeling the, experience, feeling the effects of it and experiencing it and struggling with it throughout the whole of our lives. In fact, we may even say that a great deal of the anxiety parents sometimes feel in the raising of their children is simply down to the fact that we want for the next generation to be able to navigate the fact that we live in a world that is, in many ways, at war with itself. We want them to be able to navigate that. And it's not that we have some sort of prescient, sort of prophetic foresight into these things. It's just simply that we've experienced it for ourselves. We know the pain and the hurt and the disillusionment that come with all of that. And so Paul's point is that this relational destruction, this pain and disillusionment, it's not the way the world just is. It's not the, the, the state of society before some civilizing power comes along to make everybody just behave. No, it's not the need of education, more education to fix it, or of political will or power to overcome it, or of demonstrative masculinity to push against it, or empowered femininity to reform it, or stoical resolve to cope with it, or any of the other explanations that have been offered for our striving against each other. No, this relational destruction is nothing less, in Paul's mind, than the evidence of God's judgment 
against our willfully rebellious determination that he is relationally unworthy. And in allowing us to experience the painful outworking of our severing of this vertical relationship between us and God in the horizontal aspects of our lives, God mercifully calls us back to him. And so again, the key truth of our passage, God's merciful judgment further gives us over to the relational destruction that flourishes when we judge him to be relationally unworthy. So let's look again at the text and see this more particularly set out. Verse 28 again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, one way to translate the Greek behind verse 28 is just to simply say, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. I think that's how the NIV has it. That preserves well the the impression that Paul is seeking to make here, because the idea here isn't so much causal, as in, you know, first this and then this. First, they didn't acknowledge God, and then next comes along their debased mind. So much as, as it is correlative, as in not acknowledging God correspondingly brought about a debased mind. Not acknowledging God and having a debased mind are two sides of the same coin, in other words. Two ways of describing that, that, that same reality that we have forsaken God and judged Him in our sin, relationally unworthy, not worth our time, not worth our time to retain a knowledge of Him in our minds and cultivate that and grow it. And from this debased mind, we do things that ought not to be done. We, we fill the world with all manner, according to Paul, of unrighteousness. And that brings about relational disruption and, and division everywhere we turn. Now, debased simply means not what it should be. It can be used in a financial currency sort of sense. It's often used that way in the Bible. So, you know, you, you might have a, a gold or silver coin, and to debase that coin or currency is just to take some of that gold or silver away from those coins and fill it with some other kind of uh, less worthy metal so that the currency after a time is not what it should be. It's debased. It's not what it once was. It's not what it's truly presenting itself as. And in the moral sense, it carries with it the idea that we, we lack relational integrity. We're not relationally whole, and consequently, we, we don't treat others with that relational wholeness, with that, with that integrity that we were all made to know and to experience. And Paul's point is that this relational destruction on the horizontal plane between each other is, is, is an outworking in judgment of the fact that we have judged God to be relationally unworthy of our time and affection of cultivating a deeper knowledge of Him, of walking with Him. And Paul plays on words a bit, really to, to drive this point home for us. We've not seen fit, he says, to acknowledge God, to retain a knowledge of Him in our minds. We, we've judged Him unworthy, and so we've been given up in judgment to cultivate things that are not fit for us, that are not worthy. And at the heart of it is, is our forsaking of the Lord. Now, isn't it this way with us, if we're honest? Don't we still struggle with this from time to time? For, for how many of us is it our, our first instinct when we uh, wake up in the morning, when our heads leave the pillow, to say, I delight, O Lord, to do your will? I mean, you know, what will bring pleasure to you this day? How, how will I honor you in the decisions that I make and how I relate to other people? Or, or maybe not even as, as dramatic as that, maybe just on the simple plane of remembering that the Lord himself said, man does not live by bread alone. 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How, how often is that on our hearts and minds as we wake up in the morning? Or, or, or think about the moment we find ourselves in a relational squabble, uh, some sort of division. We, we feel attacked or uh, misinterpreted, unheard. Quickly, we reveal that we think we are ourselves at the center of the universe, that, that our concerns are what is, what is most paramount in our relationships. You know, or, or we might find the study of the Bible eh, a bit of a drag sometimes. There are, and there are all sorts of Bible passages that we kind of want to maintain a respectful distance from, you know, a bit embarrassing, or maybe pull a little bit too much on our allegiances, our affections, want to maintain a sort of distance from those things. You know, sometimes we have to be dragged into alignment with God's perspective on, on things. Or, or how many of us are tempted to put our, our trust and our hope in political systems that, that don't acknowledge God? You know, oftentimes the best that we can say about them is that this or that one matches up a little bit more closely than the others. But we never claim that this or that political system aims for the, the, the exaltation of Christ and the self-sacrificing service of our neighbor in the confident hope and expectation that this world is not our home. We, we don't claim that for these political systems. That's not in a political platform. Now, don't get me wrongly. I'm not saying we need to make that our goal as though that will fix it. No, what I'm saying is, it is the irony of ironies that we would allow these political divisions to become flashpoints, a further division among us, God's redeemed and reconciled people, instead of recognizing that they, they all stem from one and the same source, namely that we've forgotten God and tossed aside his opinion. You know, tossed aside his opinion is, well, what, myopic, not realistic enough, not directly applicable to the here and now? Take your pick. So all of us struggle with this. That, that's Paul's point here. Let me illustrate it with an example that has uh, stuck with me from my seminary days. You know, they often say that we read books not so much for the ideas on the pages or in the paragraphs, so much as for, you know, one or two sentences that usually stand out to us and maybe challenge our perspective on things that, that really kind of um, cause us to rethink maybe the way that we've been going for a while. And maybe it's the same for, for seminary courses, at least it was in this case. It was in a class I was taking on the history of the Reformation. And we were reading a little book called uh, Calvin versus Sotoletto, or the, the, the Reformation Debate, something like that. And it, it's a, uh, just a summation, really, of uh, an early debate that John Calvin had uh, with a bishop in Spain from the Roman Catholic Church called Sotoletto. And in 1538, John Calvin had been ministering for a while in the city of Geneva, and then he'd gotten into a bit of a tiff with the city leaders, and they had exiled him out of the, the city. And at that time, this bishop in, in, in Spain called Sotoletto realized, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to write a letter to the citizens of Geneva and invite them to come back into the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's what he did. He wrote this letter, and in his letter, he, uh, he filled it with all sorts of expressions uh, to the effect that the Genevans really ought to think seriously about their eternal destiny. You know, they're, they're gambling a lot, he says, uh, on this new Reformation idea, on this justification only by faith idea. Uh, and, and they really want to think seriously about the fact that they might be putting their ability to enter into heaven in jeopardy by following something that, that's new and sort of novel. And they should really stick with the Roman Catholic Church if they really want to be sure that they're going to they're gonna make it to heaven. So Saladetto writes this letter, he sends it to the citizens of Geneva. They don't know what to do with it. So despite the fact that they've exiled John Calvin out of their city, they, they pass the letter along to him and ask him to respond to it for them. So we're, we're, we're reading about this debate, we're reading about this history in this class, 
And uh, all the while, I'm thinking, all right, I, I think I know where John Calvin is going to go as he responds to this letter. I think he knew, I know how he's going to you know, attack this line of thinking and, and respond to it. He's just going to say, no, 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 Sotoletto, you, you're not understanding correctly. Justification by faith is clearly taught in the Bible. We, we, we're trying to reform the church. We're trying to get her back to a, a pure understanding of God's word, better faithfulness to what God teaches us. And uh, I think, all right, I, I kind of track with you. I, I can anticipate where you're going. And it was that point in the class when we really got into how John Calvin responds to Sotoletto that I realized that even in the times when I feel like I'm tracking with the Lord and, and really being faithful to his word, I still struggle with self-centeredness because John Calvin doesn't respond that way to Sotoletto at all. Instead, he says, Mr. Sotoletto, this reveals really the heart of the difference between us and you in that we think it's bad theology to confine a person's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence zeal to illustrate the glory of God, because we were made first of all for God and not for ourselves. And when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, here in seminary, even as I'm training to enter into the ministry and filling my head and heart with all these good things, even there, I sometimes struggle with the idea that we were made for God. So that even when I think I know how Mr. Calvin is going to respond to Sotoletto and how he's going to attack this line of reasoning, I'm still sort of self-centered, focused mainly on, yeah, we, we want to be people who are aiming for heaven and we want to make sure we have the right ideas to, to get there, instead of saying, how is God most glorified in my life as the prime motive of, of my existence? Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we become you know, almost totally forgetful of our own humanity um, or, or these things don't matter for the way in which we live. Of course they do. But, but are we setting the Lord and, and His honor and His glory as the thing that is most important to us, the thing that we focus on uh, above everything else? That's what, what Paul is encouraging us to see in these verses. Is that we, we really struggle with that. We don't naturally just latch onto that. And it has relational consequences for us. But those relational consequences aren't the end of the story. They're given to us by God so that we can see the emptiness of life apart from Him, the emptiness of, of all of our efforts to make ourselves the center of the story, uh, to make even our own relationships so central to our identity that we forget the Lord. And in that judgment, He calls us back to Himself. So our fundamental problem is alienation from the God who made us. And the whole Bible, uh, the whole of the Bible's plotline, we might say, is designed to answer this question. How can we who are rebels by nature and by choice be reconciled to our God? And at heart, this is a vertical question. Now, it's a vertical question with horizontal implications, as we said, implications for our relationships with each other. Our judging of God to be unworthy brings relational destruction on every area of life. And without Christ, we therefore live, according to Paul and his argument here, we live with a debased mind. And that debased mind is deluded. It's not what it should be. It's not integrally whole. And we're easily deceived. And therefore, we do things to each other which we ought not to do. We, we conduct ourselves with all unrighteousness. You know, the, the fruit of our thoughts is frequently evil. It's filled with covetousness and malice. It springs, according to Paul, with hearts that are filled with envy of others, violent anger towards those who oppress us or oppose us, striving to be above the rest. Frequently, our, our tactics to kind of get ahead are, are deceitful and malicious. Or maybe more passively, we, we gossip, we slander. 
we hate passionately the image of God stamped upon the breast of every man and woman that we meet because it reminds us that we were made for him and not for ourselves. And so we try to ignore it. We are insolent to our fellow image bearers or we're haughty and boastful as if to say, well, the fact that I can in some way be better than you is sort of to make good on the promise that I can be my own God. Or we invent evil ways to ignore their humanity. If necessary, according to Paul, we'll turn our backs on our own parents. There is no cost too high in our sin and rebellion that our foolish hearts will not pay it if we can live to ourselves. We're, we're faithless, we're heartless, above all, we're ruthless in our quest. And so this is a very sobering outline, very sobering list of the relational destruction that comes when we turn our backs upon God, when we judge Him to be relationally unworthy. And as we've said, this relational destruction is evidence of God's judgment, and it's meant to lead us to repentance. God gives us, gives us up to things that we know deserve death, and not only do we do them, we encourage those who do them. We give our approval to those who make a practice of them. And this, this was us. That's Paul's point here. Well, we can't escape this. We can't pretend that this didn't used to be part and parcel of our lives. We can't pretend even now that we don't still struggle with this and feel the effects of it. Yet the astounding truth of the gospel is that the Lord pursued us even when we had rejected him. We'll come to that in many weeks from now when we come to Romans chapter 5. This is the love of God displayed to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to overcome our blindness and our sinful rebellion and to bring us back to him. And through him to be reconciled to each other. No longer does this terrible destruction of sin set the standard for our relationships. No longer uh, does, it, does it mark us as a sort of destiny that despite our best efforts, this is invariably the, the, the pit into which we are going to sink. No, instead the Spirit enables us to enjoy peace with God and with each other. And how does He do it? How does He do it? By enabling us to acknowledge God. Again, that's Paul's point here. He's, try, he's helping us to see this with a God's eye point of view, to see our relational destruction, the, the relational consequences that come when we reject Him from His point of view as an outworking of our judging Him to be relationally unworthy. And so as He turns our backs upon these, this, this sinful way of living, He helps us to see more clearly the, the beauty and the awesomeness and the goodness of our Lord God and to turn our hearts to Him, to experience peace with Him, and through that, peace with each other. He enables us to know God, to study His ways, to walk with Him, to embrace Christ by faith, to turn all our problems and anxieties and hopes and dreams over to Him and to say, Your will, not my will, be done. That's how He does it. Now, is this to say that, that everything in the world is always as bad as it could be? No. Is it to say that there's nothing good in any human relationship, even outside of Christ? No, no, it's not to say that. Is it to say that there's nothing good or true or beautiful in culture that is worth enjoying? No, not at all. But how can this be? We go back to the start. Because the goodness of the world and the problems of the world are not things that are inherent to the world. The goodness of the world is rather a reflection of the goodness of God. He created it and preserves it in great power and love and mercy. And the problems of the world, our relational divisions, are not inherent to the world. They're a reflection of His judgment against sin. They're meant to lead us back to Him. So here's how Tim Keller helpfully puts it. I appreciated this quote as I was preparing this sermon this week. He says this, All systems of thought must account both for the awesomeness of the cosmos and the goodness of which humanity is capable, and for the brokenness of the world, 
our societies, our lives, and relationships. Why is there so much beauty? Why is it so flawed? Paul's answer is simple. God. There is a God who made it all and made us in his image to know and reflect his character. And that same God has, in wrath, given us what we have chosen, life without him. Worshiping things which cannot satisfy. In the beauty of the world, we are to see God's existence. In the brokenness of the world, we are to see God's justice. And as we do, we run back to the place where we see God's mercy, the cross. Amen. The cross is the place we must run to in repentance, for there we will find God's mercy, His relational embrace and goodness and love, and the Spirit's work to renew our minds in holiness and love for God and neighbor. You know, the, the worthiness of God, His love and goodness is displayed supremely in the cross, because it is on the cross where Jesus bore the cost of our sin, and by triumphing over it by death, by, through the cross, brought us home to God. And so again and again, the, the, the love of God in Scripture is portrayed supremely for us in the cross because it is there in which we see the worthiness of God, that God's love extends to us even in our rebellion, even in our sin, even at the very point when we had judged Him to be relationally unworthy. So a good question for us as we ponder these things is this, in what ways have the, relational, have the relationally disruptive consequences of God's judgment pushed you toward His mercy in the cross, His goodness and love, and His power to renew your mind in holiness? In what ways have you experienced that reality? And then, how might this impact the ways in which you relate to others? What effect is that, is that having in the ways that you think about your relationships, in the ways that you think about how you cultivate them, how, how you begin friendships? how you become part of a flourishing community and help that to be all that it can be. As you engage as a responsible citizen in a country that you're seeking justice and wisdom and equity in it, how does the, 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 the judgment of God against these relationally disruptive consequences of our sin and yet His mercy to us in the cross and the display of His worthiness, of His goodness, of His love in that, how is that shaping the way that we ourselves engage our relationships and think about them and talk about them and seek after them and seek their good and seek their cultivation? And how might that impact the ways that we, we think about these things, especially you know, in an age of social media? How, how often is the gospel playing a role in how we think through what we post or how we respond to comments and the things that we uh, that we, we amplify and endorse? How, how is the gospel affecting the ways that we engage our relationships? May we be a church, O Christ Community Church, may we be a church that grows by increasingly being aware of the true causes of relational disruption, recognizing God's merciful judgment in it, and responding again and again and again to the message of the cross that through our brokenness, Jesus came so that we could be at peace with God and to give us the renewing power of the Spirit to restore what is broken, to enable us to be people who, in great love for God, are able to love each other as we were always intended to, to be relationally whole, to be filled with integrity. And so, what does Romans 1, 28-32 teach us? It teaches us simply this, God's merciful judgment further gives us over to the relational destruction that flourishes when we judge Him to be relationally unworthy. Again, this is a sobering message, and it closes for us this first chapter of Romans, where Paul is outlining the, the horrific consequences that have come with our swapped allegiances when we've worshipped the Creator, and, and we've worshipped rather the creature and not the Creator. We've given up uh, our relationship with the Lord God for, for things that cannot satisfy. 
And yet let us end on this more hopeful note that despite these things, the goodness of the gospel shines all the more brightly when we recognize that when we were lost in this sin, when we were lost in this terrible cycle that we could not pull ourselves out of, Christ came and redeemed us from it. And may we use that as a motivation and uh, as a further fixing our gaze upon it so that we would be people who are marked more and more by that same love toward each other. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, even at the times when it convicts us, even at the times when it is a hard word to hear because it strikes so close to home, Lord, we, we thank you that you are the God who cares so much for us, that you help us to see things as they really are. You help us to see relational disruption for, for what it really is, the outworking and judgment of our rejection, our ultimate rejection against you. And Lord, we also are thankful that you didn't leave us there. This is not the end of the story for us, but that you in great love and mercy reached out. You drew us out of this pit of relational destruction so we could come back to you. Lord, that we could know you, that we could love you, and through that, we could be renewed in holiness and begin to experience peace in our broken relationships. Lord, even now, we, we still feel the effects of some of this. Not everything is whole just yet. And yet, Lord, we still see your spirit at work in us to unite us in a common faith, to unite us in love for one another, to unite us even in the relationships that have been deeply hurtful. Lord, we ask that you continue this great work among us. Help us to be people who are continually seeking your face, that this may be the result, that we may be known as a church that loves deeply because we are loved deeply by you. So do this great work for us, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.